You're listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street, where real people working in the finance industry talk about life, work, and faith, with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. Mike Stallard is an author, keynote speaker, and expert on how effective leaders boost human connection in cultures to improve performance. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Nathan. It's great to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited to talk about what we're going to talk about. And for those who don't know you, can you just tell me who you are, what you're all about? Well, my calling is to help people connect. And that includes helping leaders create cultures, environments, um, social environments, where people connect. And that need that God has put into us has created us for, um, is met so that we flourish and society flourishes. What a great calling, especially at a time in history like this, where so many of us feel disconnected from one another. I want to dive into that in a couple of minutes. But first, the title of this podcast is Jesus Walks on Wall Street. Now, before you got into this connection culture stuff, you had a career on Wall Street. Can you just tell me about that? Sure. It was... I. Um, recognized early in my professional career that the money was good on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I made my way there. Um, I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot. And uh, I like to describe the first chapter of my life um, professionally as failure is not an option. So it was, I was very driven and um, I uh, eventually worked on Wall Street. And during my roughly 20 some years on Wall Street, I worked in a variety of areas. I started out in municipal finance and then moved to corporate finance and eventually went into the money management side of the business and and then toward the end of my career in private wealth management. Um, a lot of my, I worked on the deal side and I worked heading marketing for private wealth management for Morgan Stanley and, and um, the high net worth part of Charles Schwab. So it was a really interesting journey. I just saw a lot of different parts of Wall Street, mm-hmm. um, got to uh, got a good feel for what the cultures are, what they do. I was curious and it, it, uh, it was fascinating to see how Wall Street worked. You were doing well on Wall Street, right? Mm-hmm. And what made you want to leave? What made you want to stop doing that work? Well, part of it was, it was a time when some of the organizations I worked in were going through some difficult mergers. And I was spending, you know, with the commute from Connecticut and the longer hours and also just the way I'm wired. I wanted Mm -hmm. the mergers to work and they Mm -hmm. were difficult. There was culture clash. And so I spent a lot of my time away from work, thinking about work. And Mm -hmm. so I wasn't really present with my family and Mm -hmm. friends. I started Mm -hmm. not feeling well, Nathan, Mm -hmm. because I had crowded out time for my family and friends, for my faith, quite Mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. I was focused on solving this problem of culture clash, Mm -hmm. and I didn't feel well, but I didn't understand why. I started to feel more lethargic. I needed more caffeine. I needed more exercise to keep my body going. I needed uh, more alcohol at night to slow down, Mm. and the wheels were coming off the bus. I Mm. recognized that, but I didn't understand why. And so, of course, it was about that time I got an offer to join Goldman Sachs, Mm. and I turned it down. Mm -hmm. And I told Gary Black, who um, was the guy I was interacting with primarily at Goldman, 
that um, I had a book I needed to write and I needed to take some time off to do that. And he must have looked at you like you had three heads. (laughs) We had a very good uh, relationship. So, uh, but I think he was surprised that Mm -hmm. I responded that way. I'd given it a lot of thought and I was somewhat burned out from just leaving my prior job and I needed time to heal and reconnect with my family and Mm. also to figure out what happened. And so I decided to just take a few years off and do research, and it led to writing a book and ultimately creating a, a new firm and a second career that it really has been a joy in my life. You and I were talking about that moment in your life, and you cited a book that you read during that research phase. Can you tell me again the title of that book? It was The Loss of Happiness in Market Democracies oh. by Robert Lane, who is a professor emeritus at Yale. The Loss of Happiness in Market Democracies. What was that book about, and, and can you just describe that? Well, it was a very technical book, um, but I, I remember as I read through it, a couple things jumped out, Nathan. One was that Lane said, we may be moving into a new anthropologic age mm. uh, where the decline of connection and community is having this um, negative effect on subjective well-being, which is another word for happiness. Mm -hmm. And there was a graph in the book. It was a X and it showed that after world war two GDP or economic growth increase. So it was a positively sloped line going up from left to right and subjective well-being was moving in the other direction, which is so counterintuitive. You would think as we get wealthier that happiness or subjective well-being would go up, but that's not what was happening. And it was Lane's belief that it was a decline of connection Hmm. and community in society Hmm. after World War II that was driving this trend. So material wealth accumulation has an effect on the human relationship scene where we become more and more disconnected from one another, the more wealth we've accumulated. Is that basically a way of summarizing that? I think there, are, when you get into the nuance, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot going on. Number mm-hmm. one, I think after World War II, a lot of families, multiple generations, lived together. You know, yep. not unusual to have two or three generations living in the same, um, you know, household. Mm-hmm. Now we have the highest percentage in history in the U.S. and worldwide of people who live alone. Yeah, it's about the last data I saw was about twenty eight percent of U.S. households. And in Manhattan, it's about 50% hmm. people live alone. Now, that's wow. not bad if, you have, if you're engaged in community sure. and a faith community and your yeah. family. But it is, it is bad if you don't have those connections. In fact, um, Julianne Holt-Lundstedt, who is a researcher at Brigham Young University, did a meta-analysis of the most robust data available worldwide on connection versus loneliness. In fact, she studied three situations um, the um, does the person feel connected mm-hmm. or or lonely? Second, is the person socially isolated where they're just not around people? And the third aspect that she studied was do people live alone? And she found that all three were roughly the same mm-hmm. in terms of, of their impact on premature death, mm-hmm. which is she found that people who have um, who are are lonely socially isolated or live alone have a risk of early death that's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day oh my goodness now does suicide factor into that statistic it it doesn't there is a high correlation 
Mm-hmm. Now, into her research, it didn't. She didn't study uh, suicide. But other research does show that there's a high correlation between loneliness and suicide. There's also a high correlation between loneliness and violence. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. in society, the FBI tells us that we have a mass shooting in the U.S. now every two weeks on average. Yeah. And the vast majority of the shooters are lonely yeah. male yeah. shooters. Yeah. So this is a really depressing conversation so far, but I want you to tell me about some of the solutions to these dramatic problems. Tell me about the book that you ended up writing after these years of research and the work that you do as a result. Well, it's been an utterly fascinating journey. I'll bet. And I just, uh, I remember there was a a time as as we were doing research and wrote our first book, Fired Up or Burned Out, that was published in Mm -hmm. 2007. Mm -hmm. I felt that God was really calling me to this. And um, I knew it would require a lot of writing and speaking, and yet I'm dyslexic and I have a fear of crowds. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, God, I remember really crying in bed one night and thinking, okay, how is this going to work? This is These are not pleasant. These are really difficult things for me. And yet I felt that desire mm-hmm. to do it. And um, it was about that time my wife Katie was also diagnosed with breast cancer and advanced Mm. ovarian cancer. So her chances of survival were less than 10%. Oh my goodness. And it just felt like, uh, I was, I, it was a, it was a scary time in life. And yet what happened was I remember when the, the surgeon told me that Katie had ovarian cancer and it had spread and that he was sorry. After he said that, my daughters wanted to go into the ICU to see Katie, which we did. Katie doesn't remember it because of the anesthesia, but my Mm -hmm. eldest daughter fainted in the ICU Mm -hmm. when she saw her mom, Sarah. Mm -hmm. And then Elizabeth, our youngest, who was 10 at the time, just kind of broke down on the way out. And um, I remember that night was the hardest night of my life. Mm -hmm. And... Um, just being in bed and praying, God heal Katie Mm -hmm. and help me to know how I can help Mm -hmm. Katie and these two little girls who had snuggled up and fallen asleep on Katie's pillow Mm -hmm. and just seeing them and knowing that there was a less than 10% chance that their mom would survive Mm -hmm. and be around in five years. So I remember falling asleep praying that night, and the next morning, um, God started answering that prayer when um, Jason Pankow mm-hmm. <laughs> showed up at the hospital, and he um, actually beat me to the hospital. I dropped off the girls, and when I arrived, um, Katie was there with Jason, and Katie was still out of it because of the anesthesia. But someone had raced to our aid, and we saw just an outpouring of... Mm-hmm affection from our neighbors, our Mm. friends in town. Uh, A lot of women organized meals for our Mm -hmm. family the weeks Katie couldn't get out of bed from chemotherapy. They organized transportation for our daughters to and from their after-school activities. Um, People were constantly coming over our house. And it wasn't a a sad time. It was, um, for me, surprisingly, it just... um, and the support we had from our medical professionals at Greenwich Hospital and at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, I just, I found that I started, I was more, I was optimistic that with 
the competence of our medical professionals and our faith and the support of um, our medical professionals and family and friends that maybe we could get Katie through this. And this year we celebrated Katie's 15th year of being cancer free from ovarian cancer and five years from her third episode of cancer, which was triple negative breast cancer. So she's a three time cancer survivor. And now Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center and Yale New Haven Health are both clients of ours. Mm -hmm. We help their supervisors create life giving cultures of connection that research has shown uh, not only protect doctors from and nurses and others from burnout and trauma, it helps them deal with trauma of losing patients, but also has a positive effect on patient outcomes. What an amazing scene you've just described of real connection. And I want you to now apply what you've been thinking about and teaching and learning about connection. You you know, when I think of like a, let's say a hedge fund or a private equity shop or whatever, you know, some kind of money-making enterprise, I'm not exactly picturing the kind of deep, meaningful, you know, emotional level connection between human beings. So how can you take what you just described as, you know, beautiful human connection. How do you try to introduce that kind of thing? Is it even appropriate to introduce that kind of thing in a workplace, for example? Help me connect these dots. Well, I found that the financial services sector is has the worst cultures that I've seen. And it's, you know, we've done work with the NASA Johnson Space Center. We did three years of work with um, the engineering section. So it's the, literally the rocket scientists and engineers there. And um, they, what we found is, number one, we had to convince them intellectually that this mattered, that connection mm-hmm, mattered, mm-hmm. that connection is a superpower is how we describe mm-hmm. it. And disconnection is a super stressor. Mm-hmm. that will sabotage your performance and your joy in life and your organization's performance. And so we make that case with research and help them understand the biology. And it's fascinating. You know, they're smart, smart mm-hmm. group, as a lot of people are on, on Wall Street. So that's what we do first. We call it uh, developing a connection mindset. Mm-hmm. So we help them overcome those intellectual obstacles and understand how God made us of course we don't use scripture in those settings, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we use, you know, very reputable research and we understand it. We interact with most of the researchers, so they've helped us understand it. And, um, and then we get into how you create a connection culture. Um, we've developed a, a simple, memorable, actionable formula that just helps busy managers. Um, mm-hmm. we call it vision value voice, um, communicating a vision of serving others mm-hmm valuing people as human beings Mm. and giving them a voice. Mm. If you do those three things, you'll be better than 99% of the leaders out there. In fact, you'll be a leader who people want to follow. Vision, value, voice. Vision, value, voice. And it's true in the church too. (laughs) I think another way to think of it is that in some ways it's indicative of the nature of the Trinity that, you know, the Bible tells us that God is love, which is in a, similar to valuing people Hmm. at the highest level that um, Jesus came to serve. And that's, you know, the vision part. We're serving others in a way that's, um, that's helping them bring and making the world a better place and helping achieve people flourish. 
And the Holy Spirit is invisible, but points to the others through its effect. Hmm. And in a sense, there, there's an aspect of humility there that mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it produces, it, it connects people. And so that humbly loving and serving others is kind of another way of saying vision, value, and voice. Now, when you go speak to a CEO, you don't you don't start with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I get that, but if, let, let's say there's a CEO listening to this podcast right now, and they're hearing you say, you know, your organization really could use some connection, and the CEO is maybe hearing this, going, "That sounds a little touchy feely, man. I got a bottom line, I got goals, I got to get this next deal hammered out. I don't have time for connection culture. Can you just try to sell that person on this idea?" Well, our clients are almost entirely technical organizations. So this fall, we started doing work with the U.S. Air Force. I taught uh, commanders at the Peterson Air Force Base, which is one of the largest Air Force bases in the U.S. and most active. Um, We started doing work with the Federal Reserve. We um, do work with Yale New Haven, with MDN. We've done work with MD Anderson in Texas, uh, Qualcomm, Google, Costco is one of our clients. We, we've uh, taught all the warehouse managers worldwide, and they've been recognizing as being the num- one of the top five employers in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Forbes Statista Research. And so um, we're used to working in cultures that are primarily analytical mm-hmm. and making the case and helping them understand that they need this too mm-hmm. or it's going to hold them back they're not going to be able to give their best performance mm-hmm. or enjoy their life as much. So we, one of the things we say early on is that our work is relevant in the workplace, but also think about how this affects your family and your friends mm-hmm. and the organizations you're involved in outside of work because right. it's very re- it's relevant to all of those two. Right, no kidding. And it, there, it, we, we haven't had any, um, you know, there, if our work is threatening to people, then they won't accept it. Mm-hmm. But if they're open-minded, mm-hmm. and we often find that, you know, there's a mix of responses. There's the person who believes it, even though they're in a technical bag. I think of like the former chief of the U.S. Navy, Vern Clark, who was second longest serving chief of the Navy. He's an engineer. Um, he really has embraced our work. And Alan Mulally, who they've called an engineer of engineers who turned around Ford, yeah. he's you know, I've talked to Alan, he mm-hmm. embraces our work, says mm-hmm. it's the best description of what happened in the turnaround of Ford Motor Company. Wow. He's writing an endorsement for our next, for mm-hmm. uh, the second edition of our book that's coming out. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've said the title of your book. I want to make sure you hear it so people can go buy it. It's called Connection Culture. Yeah. And what's the subtitle? Uh, the Competitive Advantage of Shared Identity, Empathy, and Understanding at Work. All right, Connection Culture available on Amazon, I assume? Yes. And your website? Is connectionculture.com. All right, everybody go find this stuff and and, um, dive into it. Let me just take one example. You mentioned um, some companies that have adopted your work. Let's just say it's Qualcomm. Okay, Mm -hmm. so tell me how the average employee at Qualcomm might have a, how is your work at their corporate level impacting their daily life and work? Well, our work at Qualcomm was with the, um, the woman who headed the quality, or not quality, but um, innovation. Okay. There. She's now at Microsoft. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and she 
like a lot of our clients, she was already creating a connection culture. Mm-hmm. And you, you see it, and I remember interacting with her team. There was just an openness. Um, they had developed great relationships throughout Qualcomm so that people would, the, the way this innovation group worked at Qualcomm was that people would come to them if they had an idea and they needed extra resources to see it through. And then she and her team would look at, you know, does this make sense, something to explore? And then they would be able to resource it and help that person with it. So there was actually an architect who came to them (laughs) inside Qualcomm with an idea about creating stereo sound for for, uh, cell phones. Mm -hmm. And their... Uh, the chips they make have the ability to do that. You know, they, they could develop that. So they decided that's a really fascinating idea. And they pulled together the team, they worked on, they figured the problem out, and now it's actually commercialized. Yeah, right. yeah. So that, um, you know, stereo-like sound mm-hmm. is available on cell phones. Well, mm-hmm. that's because of the chip that Qualcomm developed. And they, this woman who headed the group she was great at we always use the vision value voice formula mm-hmm. and you know their desire was to they're engineers so they love coming up with new things that are valuable in the marketplace that was kind of what the vision that drove them some something new that's valuable she was fantastic at making every employee feel valued and giving them a voice. It was such an open collegial culture. She was like the mom of the group <laughs> and she's a well-respected engineer, hmm. but she just had, uh, she cares about people hmm. and, uh, there was, she had a sparkle, um, just in the joy of, uh, her team being together mm-hmm. and you could sense it. I'm sure people in Qualcomm knew that mm-hmm. and it just attracted people to them. So it's no surprise that they came up with great innovations. No kidding. Um, so that was, and often we find in organizations that there it's all about subcultures. There are subcultures that are connecting and there are others that are disconnecting because they're, they tend to be over controlling or they're just so task oriented. They're indifferent to people. So that task orientation can really crush the human spirit, really, and it can crush this this ability for us to connect as human beings. Exactly. And you have to have both, right? You have to, mm. we talk about developing task excellence and relationship excellence. Right. Yeah. So this is interesting because some people might hear what you're saying and think, there goes my you know, ability to really achieve the best results. Now I got to pay attention to connection culture, but what you're saying is they can actually be related. Yeah. You, you have to have both. And I, I think of the great leaders I've had the chance to get to know, and that's been one of the joys is interacting with people like, uh, Vern Clark, the former chief of the Navy or, uh, Jim Sinegal, the co-founder and longtime CEO of, of Costco, who I just, uh, you know, he, the guy has a great sense of humor. He's mm. fun to be around. He really cares about people. And he had um, a mentor named Saul Price who mentored him for 50 years. They met when Jim was 18 years old. Jim started unloading mattresses at FedMart, was the name of the store in San Diego that Saul uh, created. It was the first membership warehouse concept. Hmm. And uh, Saul, uh, Jim was going to school at night. And he needed to pay <laughs> for his education. 
So he did some work for the U.S. Navy in the area of laundry, <laughs> moving laundry around, and he unloaded mattresses at Walmart and other things uh, from the trucks. I'm sorry, not Walmart, um, uh, FedMart. And uh, he connected with Saul Price, who became his long-term mentor, and really Saul defined what has become the culture of Costco. Fascinating. An interesting story. Yeah. I want to go back for a moment to that very vivid description you gave us of your wife's ICU stay and your daughter's there. And then the days and weeks that followed that, you were really describing, you were illustrating a connection culture. You had people coming into your home. They were caring for you. They were loving you in meaningful and practical ways. And I want to revisit that for a moment because... What I, what I hear in stories like that is that there's a, when there's a need, then people can respond in love. And, and when we think about wealth and power, um, what happens is we begin to solve our own problems with the money that we have, right? So if I have a need, guess what? I, I don't really need my neighbor to come over with a casserole because I can bring in a chef that I'm going to pay or something like that. So there's this interesting dynamic where we think we're going to be happier if we have more wealth and if we have more people to solve all our problems. But what we end up missing is the um, opportunity that need can provide for connection. Is this something that you think about? Nathan, that's so true. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was my mindset that you know, I was going to do this on my own. And I, I think I had developed a self-sufficiency mindset because, you know, I had moved from, you know, being born in a trailer park to Greenwich, Connecticut here. You know, what is it? I heard Ian Cron say it was the wealthiest, con wealthiest city in the wealthiest state and the wealthiest country in the history of the world. Yeah. And, and so the, the danger in that is you start to think that you did that. Mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was hard work and things that, and a lot of opportunities that, led us to being here in Greenwich. But what I found was um, that I, I hit a point in life when, when Katie was diagnosed, and here my, my beloved Katie, my, my best friend, a wonderful mother, um, the thought of Katie not seeing the girls grow up and the girls losing this wonderful mother, just really, I experienced a sadness and I didn't know what to do mm -hmm. and I had never felt that in my life, mm -hmm. but it led to allowing God to work through others to mm -hmm. help us in a way that I couldn't do mm -hmm. to, for God to work through our physicians mm -hmm. and the nurses and technicians at Greenwich hospital and, and Memorial Sloan Kettering. I mean, I, I just, it came to mind. I remember we live close to Greenwich hospital and I remember my daughters being over there just interacting with the people who worked in the cafeteria and laughing. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were really kind to our kids mm -hmm. and took the time to interact with them. And it was a scary time for them too. They knew mom was in trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, but people just reached out and, and blessed us in, in so many ways doing those things on our own or trying to do those things right. on our own. In fact, I remember reading a American cancer publication that said the worst thing for a cancer patient is to feel alone. Wow. 
And that is so true because our body goes into a state of stress response yeah. and, uh, you know, medical interventions don't work as well if your body's in a chronic state of stress response. So we really, um, to have those connections with the Lord, with our, it was almost like the Greenwich community crowded out the ability for our church family to respond. It was hmm. it, the outpouring of affection. Uh, we had people who wanted to do our laundry. Hmm. Uh, Rob Mappus, um, who Katie sings in his choir. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob and his family often came out, showed up on Sunday afternoons wow. uh, with food. <laughs> and hmm. Rob and Tammy and the girls. Uh, hanging out with us. We just had so, but it was a time of, what was surprising to me, Nathan, was I actually started experiencing more joy that I had lost from working on Wall Street. And I saw that in the research too. I started Mm -hmm. to see that connection is important. And when I started on that journey to understand the research, I didn't see that. But seeing it in the research and experiencing it, Mm -hmm. it was life, utterly life-changing. And I felt a calling then that I need needed to help other people understand yeah. this because our society is becoming lonelier. Yeah. Suicide is, is growing burnout, uh, yeah. stress, anxiety yeah. in so many aspects of our, um, culture. And it, it's not just in America, it's worldwide. I just got off the phone this morning from, with, uh, a Russian woman at a power company who's engaged with a power company in Italy. <laughs> talking about our, our work. It, it truly is a global phenomenon, loneliness, hmm. and I just see hmm. Satan using it. Hmm. And you know, like what I like to think, and we're working on a book on this called Created to Connect, mm-hmm. that Satan isolates people mm. and addicts them, mm. where the Lord unites people and, and brings love, joy, peace, patience. You know, it's the kingdom of God. Amen. And that's what we're aiming for, you know? I would never wish ovarian cancer upon anybody. Mm-hmm. But what you've just described is that I'm thinking now of that, the line that Joseph used in the old Testament where he mm-hmm. says, what you intended for evil, God used for good and for the salvation of many. So it was a wake up call for you guys. You were experiencing deep connection. You used the word joy a moment ago. Mm-hmm. You had joy in the midst of mm-hmm. crisis. Mm-hmm. I heard a story recently from a woman Uh, She was describing how she and her husband live in this several million dollar home. They have all the material needs you would ever, ever desire. Mm -hmm. And she was watching television one night and she saw footage of another couple whose house had burned down. Mm -hmm. And there was the couple embracing one another. She was feeling, this woman telling me the story was feeling disconnected from her husband. And there was this couple, they were embracing and crying and she felt envious of this couple because they were so connected, mm-hmm. right? The couple on her television. Yeah. And she looked at me and through tears, she said, Nathan, mm-hmm. I saw a couple whose house had just burned down and I'm living in my $6 million home mm-hmm. and I was envious of them. Yeah, And I thought that was so descriptive. What do we really long for? It's not a bigger house, right? It's connection mm-hmm. with each other. It is. That's where all the joy is. It's in connection. And what I hope for is not that everybody needs to have a spouse with ovarian cancer or your Mm -hmm. house to burn down. My hope is that we can all actually experience this connection, you know, with or without the tragedies in our life that we would feel and be connected on a daily basis. And I so appreciate the work that you're doing in companies and in our community. You've been a huge encouragement to me. Anything else on your mind that you would want the listeners to, to know? 
Well, it's in, in we've taken the time to really do the research and write books and what has been a real joy for me is we're working on the second edition of our book connection culture that will come out next September. And we've added a lot of examples of women and people of color mm-hmm. who create connection. And many are immigrants at a, at a time when immigrants are being cast in a very negative light mm-hmm. by certain as you know, elements in our society. So, I think, you know, we have the stories of Lin-Manuel Miranda and the mm-hmm. group that developed Hamilton mm-hmm. and uh, Trisha Griffith, the CEO of Progressive, uh, Oprah Winfrey, Angela Merkel, who has a really interesting mm-hmm. story and has become one of the most respected leaders in, in the world. So it's fascinating to get into the stories. Um, some of the people we interact with, like Howard Bihar, they call the soul of Starbucks, um, has become a friend. And so we have, a, I think, 16, probably close to 20 case study stories of people who are intentional connectors. Many are people of, uh, many are Christians. Um, some are Jewish. Many are, are uh, Catholic Christians. It's a, it's a real interesting mix. And mm. in the next book, we hope to go deeper, mm-hmm. which we're doing some interviews for the next book. Mm-hmm. And we're asking people like Jim Senegal and Alan Mulally, tell us about the experiences and the people who shaped your ability to just connect and love people like you do Hmm. that's been so effective in your leadership. And it always comes back to a story Mm. or oftentimes a period of suffering they went through. Um, But it's those and their faith. It's like, uh, I remember Jim Senegal told me, well, I'm a Catholic, but I'm not devout. I don't go to mass every day and I'll never be a, I'll never qualify for sainthood or something, (laughs) you know? And, um, but you look at Jim, and when he's around people at Costco, it doesn't matter their position or status. Mm. You know, to him, it's like a family, mm. and he really wants everyone to thrive. He wants he sees it as a community that he's helping through his leadership. And no surprise, he has been recognized as one of the best CEOs mm. um, from a moral leadership standpoint too. Mm. Their their culture they describe as um, do the right thing, which means obey the law take care of our members, take care of our employees, which Wall Street's always giving them a hard time about overpaying and giving them too generous benefits, but they believe Mm. that's critical to their Mm. success. Uh, Respecting our suppliers, and if we do that, we'll reward our shareholders. Mm. So I can only hope you own uh, Costco stock because it's been very rewarding for shareholders, and they're growing by leaps and bounds now, and their people are flourishing. So it's exciting to see when people follow the... um, you know, people follow what we see in the Bible, you know, love the Lord, love Mm, others. Um, it's, it's, it's good from, it it helps, uh, it really helps society. Yeah. Well, as a leader myself, I I am so inspired and encouraged. I want to be a pastor like what you're describing in these leadership decisions and qualities. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and, inspiring hopefully all the people who have listened to this as well i really appreciate your time well thanks nathan i appreciate stanwich church and just the positive effect it's had on our community and just the loving culture you have here and and people i know like uh, heather um who's on staff um, focusing on connection so 
I really love this church and, and the people who are a part of it. So thank you. Thank you very much. God bless. You've been listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. 